your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. What is the historical link between surgery and violins? And although Alka-Seltzer is promoted for relief of heartburn caused by excess stomach acidity, nevertheless it contains an acid, citric acid. Why is that? If you know the answer to either of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz, and I've been uh, uh, sitting at this microphone now for uh, going on to 42 years, uh, trying to demystify science for you guys and uh, trying to keep you out of the clutches of charlatans. When I'm not doing this, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of uh, separating sense from nonsense. And we have a little bit of fun every Sunday afternoon here. I ask you some questions, you give me some answers, and I also bring you up to date on what is happening in the world of science. And I try to give you also some interesting bits of history and uh, some uh, rather uh, unusual insights into into science. All right, well, let's start with a hairy story today. And it all started back in 2003 in Rio de Janeiro. Women began to flood beauty parlors after word spread about a new treatment that claimed to straighten hair, reduce frizziness, add shine, and produce a silky smoothness. Brazilian keratin treatment, as it was called, soon became a rage and spread around the world. Before long, though, it became mired in controversy. Not because it didn't deliver the goods, it actually did, but of what else it also delivered. A dose of formaldehyde, a known irritant and carcinogen. <clears throat> All right, well, before we get to that, I have to give you a quick course in the chemistry of hair. Uh, hair is composed of a type of protein, it's called keratin. And uh, keratin forms from cells called keratinocytes in the hair bulb, which is rooted in the hair follicle. And that's like a cavity in the epidermis, the outer layer of the skin. As the hair grows, the cells fill with keratin and they die. So the hair shaft becomes basically a network of protein molecules. Genetics dictates the fashion in which keratin molecules assemble into three-dimensional structures, and that in turn determines if an individual's hair will be curly or straight. And as you know, people with curly hair want straight hair. People with straight hair want curly hair. So what can chemistry do in order to, to give them some satisfaction? Well, proteins are chains of amino acids, and these can be coiled in various ways. Keratin takes the shape of a helix, with the shape being maintained by what we call hydrogen bonds, weak attraction between oxygen hydrogen atoms in adjacent coils. Now to complicate matters, these coiled keratin helices are twisted into different shapes as a result of cysteine, one of the amino acids in keratin, binding to other cysteine fragments in different parts of the chain. Specifically, it is the sulfur atoms in cysteine that form sulfur-sulfur bridges. Now, to change the shape of the hair, 
the various bonds responsible for the keratin structure have to be first disrupted. With these bonds broken, the chain can move around more freely in response to the stresses created by combing or the placement of curlers. If at this point the bonds responsible for maintaining the structure of keratin can be reformed, the keratin, and hence the hair fibers, will have been permanently reshaped. And the new hair growth, of course, is not um, unaffected. Any new hair will have its original shape. Now, these hydrogen bonds are easily broken by exposure to water. That's why wet hair can be readily shaped. Heat, such as with a hair iron, will cause the water to evaporate and allow the hydrogen bonds to reform, keeping the hair in its new shape, at least until moisture intervenes again. To have the shape be altered permanently, the sulfur-sulfur bonds have to be broken and then reformed after the keratin molecules have been reconfigured. The chemical that has traditionally been used to break these bonds is the rather unpleasant smelling thioglycolic acid. Linking of the sulfur atoms in their new position is brought about with hydrogen peroxide. Now, in the hands of experts, results are generally good, but control of bond breakage and bond formation is not easy to control and timing is critical. Too long exposure to the chemicals can damage hair and too short can yield unsatisfactory results. Brazilian keratin treatment straightens hair without the damage that comes from disrupting the sulfur-sulfur bonds, or so goes the claim. If hair is wetted, Water molecules now get in between the keratin chains, permitting them to move relative to each other. At this point, combing results in straight hair, at least until the hair dries. However, if short chains of amino acids called peptides, which are derived from keratin itself, often from sheep's wool, are now infused into wet hair, together with a chemical called formaldehyde, then the latter forms a bond between the keratin and the added peptides, and that prevents the keratin molecules from returning to their original shape. Furthermore, the realigned keratin filaments reflect light very efficiently, producing brighter, shinier hair. So what's the controversy here? It's all about formaldehyde because it is a known carcinogen and it's also a respiratory irritant. Customers often complain when they're getting one of these treatments that, that you know, the, it all smells and, and the breathing is, is interfered with. The carcinogenicity, carcinogenicity of the formaldehyde is a legitimate concern for hairdressers because, of course, they have uh, frequent exposure. But I don't think that it's an issue for customers, you know, who, who uh, infrequently get this treatment. Now, in response to worries about formaldehyde, a number of so-called formaldehyde-free keratin treatments have been introduced. Well, sometimes these are characterized by pure dishonesty. Methylene glycol avoids the use of the term formaldehyde, but this is just a solution of formaldehyde in water. Methanal and formic aldehyde are alternate names for formaldehyde. Then there are products that really do not contain formaldehyde, and they have intriguing descriptors like hair Botox or nanoplastia. While there's some science here, it's often drowned in hype. There is, of course, no actual Botox involved. The term is used to conjure up an impression of smoothness. Nanoplastia is an invented, meaningless term. 
uh, and it's designed to infer some type of breakthrough technology. Ah, there's no big, big breakthrough here. Usually these products are based on hydrolyzed keratin or collagen and some chemical other than formaldehyde that binds these to the hair. Glyoxalic acid or glyoxalyl carbocysteine can do this. And while the term formaldehyde is avoided, these chemicals can, with heat that is usually applied during the procedure, break down and yield formaldehyde, although the amounts are likely to be insignificant. Now, there's some very interesting recent research that has shown that specific peptide sequences that incorporate cysteine residues can bind to keratin without the need for a binding agent. And these peptides can be readily manufactured and have the potential to straighten hair without the use of, uh, of harsh chemicals. With the importance that people place on the appearance of their hair, it is certainly understandable that there's great competition among products, with each one trying to carve out a niche with some inventive wording. Terms such as nourishes, replenishes, redensifies, restores, reconstructs, and rebalances are all meaningless when applied to hair as are organic or, or natural. It targets the hair's DNA. Pure nonsense. Some products are promoted as chemical-free. And as you can imagine, uh, I find that very disturbing because it is absolute nonsense. There's nothing that is chemical-free. Chemicals, of course, are just the basic building blocks of, uh, of all matter. Uh, so <laughs> I just on principle, I would avoid any product that claims to be uh, chemical-free, uh, just to send a message to the companies that produce these things that the use of such ludicrous expressions is really just an affront to, um, uh, to science. <clears throat> so there is a quick review of uh, hair chemistry uh, uh, for you. And uh, I suspect that uh, it's not all that easy to follow listening to it. So I will, in, uh, in a few weeks, I think, uh, compose a Gazette column out of all of this so that you can uh, peruse it and, uh, and really absorb it. But the basic uh, idea here is that uh, keratin treatments really do work. Uh, the formaldehyde problem is really for the customer. I don't think it is an issue. Uh, the so-called uh, non-formaldehyde products probably do not work uh, quite as well. And there's a great interest now in developing novel products, which have just a, a synthetic sequence of amino acids, a peptide that is specially designed to contain cysteine amino acids uh, that will link with the body's natural, with the hair's natural keratin and keep it in whatever shape it has been uh, styled in. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. The anti-vaxxers just don't give up twisting of the facts. This past week, I think uh, you've probably seen reports about the high percentage of infections in vaccinated people. One uh, uh, stat that I saw that more than 50% of infections in Israel are among vaccinated people. <laughs> okay, let me try to clarify this uh, for you. Think of it this way. Imagine that you have 100 people 
and uh, 83 of these are vaccinated. That is roughly the, the stat that uh, they're now seeing in Israel, which is one of the highest vaccination rates. So it would have been, let's say, an 83% vaccination rate. So we have 100 people, 83 vaccinated, 17 not vaccinated. There are four infections in this group, two of them in the vaccinated group and two in the unvaccinated. So altogether, there are four of which two are in the vaccinated group. So one could say that 50% of all infections are in vaccinated people. But it would be a nonsensical way to say that because only two out of 83 people are infected if they were vaccinated, but two out of 17 are infected if they are unvaccinated. So the percentage among the unvaccinated is much, much greater than among the vaccinated. But of course, if you have more vaccinated people, you will see more infections also among vaccinated people. So let me just repeat this again, because it's an important point, and I hope you understand this. So here's a realistic situation. You have a population of 100 people, 83 of whom are vaccinated and 17 are not vaccinated. There are two infections in the vaccinated group and also two in the unvaccinated group. So there are four infections together. You could therefore say that two out of four, that's 50%. 50% of <laughs> infections are unvaccinated people. It's a true statement, but it's meaningless because the two are of 83 in the vaccinated group and the two in the unvaccinated group are out of 17. So the percentage of infections is much, much greater among the unvaccinated. The similar story uh, goes for what we saw uh, in Provincetown in, in Massachusetts on Cape Cod, where there were a lot of infections among uh, vaccinated people. But what you have to do is compare to unvaccinated and the percentage of infections in unvaccinated is, is much greater. And the, the stats are, are, are very, very consistent. If you look at the, the numbers in, in uh, Massachusetts, 0.18% uh, of fully vaccinated people had a breakthrough infection, 0.009% went to hospital, and 0.002% died. Vaccines work. It's as simple as that. No, they are not perfect. You can get breakthrough vaccinations, uh, even in, in vaccinated people, but you have to look at the numbers. You have to take a look at how many are getting infected in the vaccinated group as opposed to the unvaccinated. And it's much greater in the unvaccinated group. All right, let's, uh, let's get uh, uh, down to my questions, which are not, uh, I don't have answers yet. Let me repeat it. What is the historical link between surgery and violence? That's one question. And also, why is there citric acid in Alka-Seltzer when Alka-Seltzer is promoted for relief of heartburn caused by excess stomach acidity. So why would you want to add more acid uh, to that? So those are the two questions that are hanging out there. In the meantime, let me talk a little bit about uh, the common symbol for medicine, which as you probably know, depicts a snake. Why is it that a snake coiled around the staff is widely recognized as a symbol of healing? 
Well, that staff belongs to Asclepios, the mythical Greek god of medicine. In ancient Greece, the sick would go to be healed at shrines called Asclepia, where priests often use sacred serpents in their ceremonies. Whether the snakes just scared people into feeling better or were actually used in treatment is not clear, but Italian researchers have now examined the healing potential of the four-lined snake commonly found in the area. The research was prompted by an ancient relief showing contact between a boy's wound and the mouth of a large snake. It turns out that snake saliva contains epidermal growth factors, which really may help heal wounds. Perhaps the snakes are blessed with this chemical because their mouths are prone to damage during the ingestion of prey. Sacred dogs were also kept in the Asclepia. Were they perhaps used to lick wounds? There are actually some evidence that dog saliva, like that of snakes, also contains epidermal growth factors. These substances induce healing by causing the proliferation of certain skin cells. Maybe that's why dogs are always licking themselves. And what happened to Asclepios in Greek mythology? The god of medicine was slain by Zeus because the chief of the gods feared that he might make all men immortal. In truth, he was probably slain by Hippocrates, who introduced the revolutionary idea that diseases were not caused by gods and could not be cured by them. Hippocrates, who lived 460 to 377 BC, began the process of careful observation and experimentation. He separated myth and magic from rational therapy. Every natural event has a natural cause, he maintained. Hippocrates investigated symptoms and was able to predict the course of disease. Asclepios' reliance on snakes for healing may yet turn out to have some merit. Proteins isolated from snake venoms have powerful anti-clotting effects, and uh, that, of course, is an obvious advantage. And uh, they are also now being experimentally used in the treatment of uh, blood clots or, or thrombosis. So there we go, the ancient symbol of medicine and why it uh, is depicted, or at least why there is a snake coiled around the, the staff of, uh, of Asclepios. Uh, I don't think uh, you want to be licked by any poisonous snakes, though. So what I was talking about here was the four-lined snake, which is a very special kind of snake that is found in Greece, and it's certainly not, uh, not poisonous, not venomous. And uh, you don't want to have any kind of treatment from a cobra, because I think it would be the last uh, kind of treatment that you would ever want to, to have. Okay. Before we take a, a break and uh, check what uh, the CTV uh, news people have to say, let me once again uh, just re-ask my question. I am looking for the historical link between surgery and violins. Historical, which means going back a, a long time. What kind of link can you think of? And the other mystery is all about Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer is promoted for relief of heartburn, uh, caused by excess stomach acidity, and yet it contains citric acid and acid. How do you explain this? You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Let's check news, and we'll be right back. 
science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, I have some interesting questions here. Someone wants to know how come the positive rate uh, for COVID was the same in Quebec last year as now. And of course, last year, nobody was vaccinated. That's not what you need to compare. What you need to compare is the positivity rate among unvaccinated people versus the rate among vaccinated people. And the rate among vaccinated people is much lower than among the unvaccinated people. Vaccines work, no matter how anyone tries to, to uh, counter the, uh, the facts. Um, all right, uh, let's go to the lines and go to John. John. Joe? Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to find out uh, about hair growth, uh, Rogaine. It, on the box, the instruction says if you're 65 or over and not to use, it can cause heart attacks. Yeah, I, can you give me a little info? Really? I, I haven't seen that warning on um, on Rogaine. I, that must be relatively new. Well, What does it say exactly? Well, I, I'm going back memory now. I, I looked at it. it. It said, like, if you're 65 or over, not to use it. I, I'm going to have to check that. I'll have to check that because I, I don't see any reason for that, and I haven't seen that warning on Rogaine. I'm, I'm going to look into that. Uh, Rogaine uh, is one of the two products that actually has clinically been shown to grow hair. That one and the other one is uh, Propecia, which is an oral tablet. Neither of them are extremely effective. I mean, at best, uh, Rogaine will give you about 8% satisfaction, which is not, not very high. But I've not seen that warning. I, I, will, I will check that during the uh, uh, traffic check, okay? All right, uh, let's go to George. George. Yes, sir. Yes. I think hey, I George. have a qu- an answer to your um, surgery violin question. Good. Go ahead. I believe that the strings of the violin and the uh, elementary, well, the first sutures that were used were all came out of catgut. Yes. And what is wrong with the term catgut? Um, <laughs> honestly, I don't think anything. It probably came from the, the interior tissues of the stomach lining of a cat, I would presume. No, but it didn't. Please explain. It, it didn't. Uh, cat gut is actually a misnomer. It has nothing to do with cats. Uh, cat gut is actually made from the intestines of sheep or of uh, cattle. Oh, wow. And uh, so where the word cat gut comes from is from uh, uh, kit string, K-I-T-S-T-R-I-N-G. And kit was the original word for fiddle. So kit string was the string that was used on a fiddle. And uh, this, this was the misinterpretation that, that became uh, cat gut. Although some people say that the expression actually comes from a contraction of the words cattle and gut. Anyway, oh, wow. what we know for sure is that uh, way back in the third century, Galen, the Greek physician, described the use of cat gut as suturing material. And... Uh, and that was the thing that was in common use until the development of synthetics, and that, that only came in the 20th century. But the use of catgut in string instruments dates back much further than that. It dates back thousands of years. 
And uh, it is still used today in some uh, string instruments, although uh, very often now it's uh, nylon that's coated with, with metal. The, those are the violin strings. And the sutures are very interesting because, uh, as you probably know, there are two categories. They are either absorbable or non-absorbable, which have to, to subsequently be uh, removed. Well, the natural materials like uh, catgut uh, eventually are broken down by enzymes in the body. And these are the so-called disappearing uh, sutures or absorbable uh, sutures. But uh, there are also some modern synthetics uh, made of things like polyglycolic acid or polylactic acid, which also dissolve very easily. But the non-absorbable sutures are, are made of uh, other polymers like polypropylene or nylon, and uh, these are used in, in places uh, in the body where you need uh, greater strength and um, uh, very often used in, in orthopedic uh, surgery and also in, in some cardiac uh, surgeries. So it depends on where they use these, these things, but they have a long uh, history of use. And yeah, cat gut is the stuff that was used in string instruments, sometimes still is, and was the original suture but it has nothing to do with the guts of cats. Okay, so thanks Thank for the answer. Thanks, and we still have the other question I have out there about Alka-Seltzer. Why does it contain citric acid? And <clears throat> let me add another question now into the mix. Why did the thinker in front of the Rodin Museum in Philadelphia turn green? The thinker is one of the classic statues, of course, uh, and uh, it was uh, first sculpted by uh, Rodin. It's actually, of course, it's a casting made out of bronze. So Rodin would have made the mold out of plaster and into that would have uh, been poured the molten bronze to make the casting. So there uh, is not just one thinker because the original cast was used to make other statues as well. The first one, though, is, you know, sort of thought to be the original, the first one that came out of the cast. And that apparently is the one that is uh, not apparently, but it is the one that is in Paris. But there are many thinkers around uh, the world made from the original uh, cast. And uh, one of them, uh, well, I, I suspect that some of the others around the world are kind of turning green also. But uh, the one that was especially noted was the one in uh, front of the Rodin Museum in Philadelphia. So the question is, why was that Rodin statue uh, turning green? And uh, obviously, there's some chemistry that is involved uh, in, uh, in the answer to that. Uh, someone also suggested uh, horsehair as the answer to, to the question. And... Uh, uh, one can make a case for that because the bow of uh, uh, of the violin, uh, the strings on that uh, are made of horsehair, uh, usually from the tail of the horse. Well, yeah, always, I guess, from the tail of the horse. Uh, I don't know if uh, horsehair ever was used uh, medically in sutures, but uh, I guess that's a possibility. Uh, certainly, uh, there were other substances historically that were used. Uh, uh, wasn't only catgut. Silk was sometimes used. Uh, cotton fiber was uh, sometimes used. 
And uh, once it was possible to draw metals into uh, thin threads, uh, metallic sutures were uh, used as well. So that, you know, that uh, I think was a, a legitimate kind of an answer to that, uh, that question. But of course, what uh, I was looking for was the, the, the cat gut. And I've always thought that that was interesting because uh, that is an expression that is so commonly used and it has nothing at all to do with, uh, with cats. And, uh, you know, there's the uh, explanation of uh, how that wording uh, came about and you can choose whether you think that came from the original word for fiddle or it was a contraction of, uh, of cattle and, and gut. But uh, you don't have to worry about cats having been sacrificed uh, to be used in surgery or to be strung into uh, instruments like the violin or the cello or um, the lute, which I think was the original string instrument because there there are uh, pictures and, and statues of, of people playing the lute uh, thousands of, uh, of years ago. So in, a little bit of interesting history there. All right, so I'm still waiting for the answer to my question about Alka-Seltzer and why it contains citric acid. And in the meantime, uh, we'll go to Mark Shaub and, and uh, check what the traffic is all about. And uh, uh, I will check the story about Rogaine uh, that the caller asked about. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. Okay, well, I figured out what the uh, the question was about the so-called warning on, uh, on Rogaine or Minoxidil, which is the generic name. Uh, it has not been tested on people over the age of 65, but there is no no label warning that it should not be used by uh, anyone. It just says it has not been tested. Now, of course, because uh, minoxidil is an antihypertensive, it reduces blood pressure. So when it's absorbed into, into the system, there are possible side effects, uh, such as lowering blood pressure. Um, sometimes it can cause palpitations. So, the, I mean, there you know, there's a host of side effects as with any, any medication. But uh, no, there is not a warning that it should not be used by people over 65, although I suspect it would not be effective in people over 65. Uh, but it certainly has not been tested. But also, as I said, it's not, uh, it's not a great uh, treatment. The, the satisfaction rate is, is pretty low with minoxidil. Okay, let's go to William. William. No, doctor. Uh, I have a. Uh, I did you have? Did you ask a question about the Roden uh, statue turning green? Yes. Oh, okay. So that's copper sulfate. Yes, very the, good. It is copper sulfate. And how did it happen? Why does it happen? The the the, um, the, uh, the metal is the copper is contained in the in the uh, in the uh, statue, but the the pollution from the air which which contains some sulfuric acid very good that's exactly exactly correct it is the acid rain that basically uh, does it the statue is made of bronze uh, which is an alloy of uh, essentially copper and tin and any time that you have copper in contact with uh, sulfuric acid it will form copper sulfate 
and copper sulfate is green. So where does the acid rain come from? Uh, well, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, of course, is in a heavily industrial area. There's a lot of coal mining there and a lot of burning of, of gases. And so uh, there's a lot of sulfur that gets into the air that uh, becomes sulfur dioxide, sulfur dioxide becomes sulfur trioxide that becomes sulfuric acid when it reacts with water and we get rained upon with sulfuric acid. Do you also get it from the car exhaust? Uh, no, you don't get sulfuric acid from car exhaust. You get oh, okay. nitric oxides uh, and of course you get carbon dioxide. Those are the main pollutants from the car engine. Oh. Anyway, the, okay. the uh, green uh, so-called patina on uh, copper products can be cleaned with acids. And uh, this is why you'll notice that, uh, you know, there are many homemade remedies for cleaning your copper that say rub with vinegar and salt. The salt is, of, of course, just uh, it's a corrosive agent. So it's a rubbing uh, compound and by friction. It will remove some some dirt, but it is the acetic acid, the acid that will dissolve the uh, copper sulfate. There's also some copper carbonate that forms because uh, carbon dioxide in the air also reacts with copper to form copper carbonate. Also, you will sometimes see uh, remedies that say rub your copper with um, uh, tomato juice or with ketchup. Well, again, it's the reason is that there are naturally occurring acids in there, but using a commercial copper cleaner works better. All right, so we got the answers to that. Let's go to Dwayne. Dwayne. Oh, Kate. Let's go to Kate. Hello there, Dr. Joe. Hi. I'm um, going to try to uh, give a stab at your Alka-Seltzer question. Okay. Um, I think we increase the, um, increase the, you said citric acid? Yeah, the citric acid in Alka-Seltzer, yes. Okay. The question is why? Uh, because uh, when you is, increase uh, the citric acid, what happens is the body reacts. These, there's a reaction, um, and it's, increases the um let's see if i can get this right it also there's a reaction of the um in the stomach of the uh well let, let me put you out of your pain no <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of where it would be yeah it's, you're trying to make so it sound logical but it, uh no you're you're completely on the wrong track oh okay Okay, let's see if someone else has uh, has got it. So we're still looking to to see why there's citric acid in Alka-Seltzer. No, it is not to cause any kind of uh, reaction in uh, in the body. I give you a little bit of a, a clue here. Uh, it has to do with marketing. It has to do with marketing. So many things obviously have to do with uh, uh, with marketing. Correct. All right. So uh, give us a call seven nine zero zero eight hundred if you know the answer to why there's citric acid. Uh, that is present in um, Alka-Seltzer. But uh, uh, let me talk a little bit about counterfeiting of coins because that has a long history. Uh, no less a personage than Isaac Newton took this bull by the horns. And late in his career, he became master of the mint and he obsessed about counterfeiters. He even designed coinage to stymie the criminals. But it was Joseph Black, professor of chemistry at Glasgow University, who in the 18th century uncovered one of the cleverest counterfeiting schemes. One of Black's main contributions to chemistry 
was the realization that carbon dioxide was given off when calcium carbonate was heated. He came to this conclusion by carefully weighing the carbonate before and after heating. And of course, the decrease in weight represented the loss of carbon dioxide. Well, Black developed an expertise in weighing, which as it turned out, came in very handy. At the time, it was common practice for students to pay their university fees directly to the professor who sat at the entrance to the lecture room and collected gold coins. Some enterprising students tried to reduce their fees by shaving some gold off the coins. They probably often got away with this, but not in Black's classes. The professor, an expert with a balance, took to weighing the coins as he took them from the students. The students learned not to cheat and learned some science at the same time. Maybe this business of giving gold coins to the professor wasn't such a bad idea. You know, with all the cutbacks we're having in education, maybe we should reinstitute it. But some clever students would probably still figure out a way to cheat. And uh, unfortunately, because these days, of course, we are giving lectures on Zoom. So there's no way to collect coins, whether they're shaved or not, from the students. We'll see what happens um, come September, because, um, you know, uh, at this point, the news is at McGill that we're going back to in-person classes, uh, except in classes that are uh, more than 150 students. So I will not be teaching uh, classes uh, in, in person because uh, my class uh, already for September has a registration of about 970 students. So uh, I will still be doing it on Zoom. And to tell you the truth, it just, it works very well. It really does. Um, the lectures, um, of course, I record them so they can review them. And uh, it has certainly cut down on the questions that students ask because they can just go back and look at the, the parts of the lecture that um, they didn't quite get, go over it, over it again, and uh, just view it until they, they get it. And, uh, you know, so there are some vestiges of... Uh, of COVID that are going to stay, uh, such as these Zoom lectures, which uh, just work very well. Okay, well, once again, we are out of time. So I guess we will have to leave the citric acid question in Alka-Seltzer over till next week. That's it, we're out of time. If you want to uh, uh, send me an email, uh, joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca, if you want to get my daily uh, three-minute uh, video updates, just send me an email. Again, it's joe.schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z, at mcgill.ca, and I'll put you on the list. I think they're entertaining and uh, also informative. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.